The issue of global warming has a lot of people confused, and in fact, a lot of people afraid. This is Evidence and Answers with scholar, author, and apologist Pat Zuckerman, who defends the Christian faith all over the world, and today on Evidence and Answers, dealing with some of the hot topic issues today and looking at them from a Christian standpoint. Looking at the evidence for global warming. What is it? What is it not? What is there to fear? What about all the hype surrounding it? Pat's special guest, Kirby Anderson, in part two of this program on global warming. I want to remind you that you can get part one when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. Pat, introduce our special guest again. Yes, once again with us is the National Director of Probe Ministries and my boss, Kirby Anderson. Welcome back to the show. Always good to be with you. Well, Kirby, we're talking about global warming and briefly summarize our discussion from last week. What is global warming and what is this controversy all about? Certainly, global warming is really kind of this observed increase in the average temperature, which we see not only in the atmosphere, but in the oceans. And I might come back to that in just a minute, because the increase of the temperature in the oceans might suggest that uh, when we talk about the carbon dioxide ratios, there may be a difference that nobody has really paid attention to. Because what is always pretty much argued, and if people have seen the film by Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth or read many of the articles, oftentimes you will see a graph in which you will see carbon dioxide increasing over time, and then you will see temperature increasing over time. Now, the theory has always been that because of the increase in carbon dioxide in the upper atmosphere, it tends to trap more heat. Thus, carbon dioxide leads to global warming. There are some that are now starting to argue just the opposite. In other words, if the temperature has gone up because, for example, the sun cycles are changing, then there, as you increase the temperature, it tends to be sort of boiling off the carbon dioxide, which is in the water. Carbon dioxide is much more dissolved in water than it is in air. You've got to recognize that most of our planet actually is water, not uh, um, actually on land. And so some people have suggested that instead of it being carbon dioxide that is increasing warming, it could be that warming's increasing carbon dioxide, which is one more of those points to kind of drop in as we go along. But nevertheless, the argument is made that we are having global warming, and uh, that's the first issue. Then second of all, the argument is, is that the primary reason for that increase in warming is due to human activity. And then the third point, which which we'll talk about mostly today, what can we do about it, even if we assume the first two are true? Now, last time we spent a little bit of time talking about some of the possible questions that people could raise about this. Uh, is global warming something that is extraordinary, or have we had cycles in the past in terms of heating and cooling of the earth, and we certainly have, and that is very well documented. Uh, so the only real question you have to ask is if indeed there have been cycles, is this current warming greater than what we've seen in the other cycles? And that's where you have, I think, a debate between those who are proponents of this idea of global warming and those who are skeptics of this idea of global warming. Well, Kirby, you mentioned Al Gore's film, The Inconvenient Truth. What impact has this film had on the debate? Well, we have to recognize that he is making some pretty strong statements. If I can quote him for just a minute, quote, humanity is sitting on a ticking time bomb, he says, quote, and we have just 10 years to avert a major catastrophe that could send our entire planet into a tailspin of epic destruction. 
So he is making some pretty significant quotes and claims suggesting that because of this time bomb, we are going to uh, have a remarkable number of events happening simultaneously. It's going to change the areas where we are able to grow crops. It is going to increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the upper atmosphere. It is going to lead to much stronger hurricanes and maybe even tornadoes uh, because of the move of all this there are going to be droughts in some areas floods in other areas there are going to be epidemics there'll be a killer heat waves and that it will raise the level of the sea level uh, at least 20 feet and perhaps one of the most dramatic pieces in his film is where he shows various parts of the world let's start with the United States first and he shows what would happen if the sea level went up 20 feet how it would flood most of Miami most of South Florida he shows how the World Trade Center would be underwater in Manhattan. If you go over to India or Bangladesh, he shows that. He goes to China, shows what would happen there uh, in various cities. And all of those statements are made to really emphasize how dangerous this is and how important it is to urgently and immediately deal with the issue of global warming. I know those who have seen the movie or parts of it and what we're learning in our schools and what we're seeing on public TV really has a lot of people frightened about global warming. Well, I think so. And uh, one of the things I want to try to do is give some people an opportunity to read some other things. And at the end of every one of your programs, Pat, I know you oftentimes point people to websites, but I might also mention that you can just uh, begin to type in using an internet search and find all sorts of very good critiques of Al Gore and of the film. And many of these critiques, interestingly enough, don't necessarily come from people that are totally skeptical about global warming. One that is, is uh, one that is called the 25 Inconvenient Truths for Al Gore. And this was actually published in National Review. And it takes on 25 of the most uh, significant claims being made in the film. Uh, We're talking polar bears and we're talking penguins. We're talking tornadoes. We're talking hurricanes. We're talking sea level and those kinds of things. And gives an analysis of it from a scientific point of view. Or you could take an individual who is very well known in the environmental movement and actually has kind of changed some of his mind, Bjorn Lomberg, who actually had worked with Greenpeace and uh, actually was the second person to testify after Al Gore. You know, when Al Gore testified fairly recently here before Congress, most people paid attention to him, but there was someone else who testified, and it was beyond Lomberg, but most people did not pay attention to that because all the cameras turned off after Al Gore made his statements, and that was that. But uh, he is also, in his book, uh, The Skeptical Environmentalist, and also in some of his more recent works, uh, in even such places as the Wall Street Journal, Uh, So you can read it in a scientific way or you can read it in a popular way. Also see his critique of Al Gore as well. So what I am trying to at least point out is, is that even people who might be predisposed to believe in Al Gore's view, they are pointing out very quickly that they are concerned about some of the hype. And in our program last time, I mentioned Don Easterbrook, who is a professor at Western Washington University, and he basically said there were lots of inaccuracies to the statements, and he 
says we have to really temper the, that with real data. Later on, there were people that were saying, well, okay, did you say that because you're bought out by an oil company? And I thought it was kind of interesting because he told the geologist there, I've never been paid a nickel by an oil company. And then he went on dad, and I'm not a Republican. I mean, so mm-hmm. there are people who are maybe even somewhat predisposed to believe there are some problems with climatic change who are nevertheless saying this doom and gloom this hype this hyperbole that has come out in the last couple of weeks and is found not only in the films but in found in many of these news reports needs to be tempered rather dramatically well this is a political football it's a it's a hot potato here and what are some political solutions that are proposed to deal with this global warming. And I think that brings us to the third point that I made. You know, the first one is, is global warming taking place? Number two, is it due primarily to human activity? And for the sake of argument, now for the next couple of minutes, let me just assume that the first two did take place. Let's just assume that that's the case. I have some real questions about that. Anybody who's listened to the two programs we've done probably can see that there is. But even if we assume indeed that we are facing a problem, what can we do about it? And there's where I think people aren't being very honest, because I have a copy of the DVD of Inconvenient Truth, and on there, Pat, you have a list of all sorts of things you can do. And as I go down the list, I'm saying, uh, recycle, I do that, you know, turn down your air conditioning, I do that, you know, uh, uh, there's all sorts of things that it suggests. But I got the funny feeling that uh, this has more to do with whether or not I drive my car in the speed limit, whether I turn down my air conditioner, or whether I recycle. And that gets us back to the major issue, and that is there is a real push right now in the Congress, especially in the United States Senate, to ratify what is known as the Kyoto Protocol. The Kyoto Treaty is something that has been entered into by many other countries. The United States refused to actually sign it, and when it was put up for a vote, it was defeated 95 to 0. But nevertheless, this would actually cap the kinds of carbon emissions that would take place here in the United States. And the estimates are that it would cost anywhere from $200 billion to $1 trillion each year. Now, that is a very significant expense on our economy. Also, what it would tend to do is limit development and uh, growth. But even if we indeed did enter into the Kyoto Treaty, which some of the European countries have done, although they haven't been able to meet their own targets, it would ignore two very important countries, India and China. India has a billion people. China has a billion people. doesn't take very long to realize that if uh, you just try to hold down the industrialized countries and you still allow the developing countries to grow, it's not going to work very well. So even if you were to implement this treaty, and even if you were to try to meet all of the targets, and even if you were to spend a trillion dollars a year that you weren't planning on spending, the best estimates that are coming even from people that believe that this is important is that it might lower the surface temperature by two-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. So what you find very quickly is is that you could spend lots and lots of money, lots and lots of time, and it would not affect the temperature very much. So that's why now you're starting to see other individuals, one scientist in particular, uh, David McAuliffe, actually has suggested that maybe we need like 30 Kyoto treaties 
Now we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars trying to prevent these struggling economies from growing and actually establishing a favorable standard of living for their population. And at the end, you simply would not have a positive impact. And so this is why more and more people are saying, even if you believe that global warming is taking place, even if you believe that human activity is the primary reason, the cost to deal with it is greater than the benefits that you might derive. Well, you bring up a couple of good points there, especially the countries of China and India. Now, I've been to China and Philippines and several other developing countries. And, for example, China, I mean, they burn a lot of coal. You talk about air pollution. It's pretty serious over there. It would be a disaster if they were going to try to implement the Kyoto Protocols in their country, along with India and the Philippines and several others. That's right. Cheapest form of um, energy, at least fossil energy, is coal. Now, what you have to also recognize is, is that it's real easy to look at China and India, but let's look at, for example, Africa for just a minute. There are about 2 billion people on this planet right now who are waiting for basics, which almost all of our listeners today take for granted. I'm talking about clean drinking water, adequate sanitation, electrical heating, for many of these individuals, their principal fuels to cook food or to heat their homes are either wood or dried dung. Now, that is the world that they live in right now. Matter of fact, the World Health Organization basically estimates that this practice of burning dung and wood in these homes leads to about 1.6 million premature deaths. So we live in a world right now where we want to bring other countries up to a standard of living, and yet if we do so, it could have an impact on the environment. So you have to come back and ask yourself the question, if we really want to help the poor, what's the best thing that we can do to help the poor? And that is to help them achieve a standard of living. Now, there was a debate recently by an evangelical, actually two evangelicals, and one who was with the Interfaith Climate Initiative, another one with the Interfaith Steward Alliance. They were debating back and forth about how to help the poor. And the individual with the Interfaith Stewardship Alliance said, well, really, the best way to help the poor is to bring them up to our standard of living. The person on the other side said, no, that would be horrible to the planet. So now you have, for the first time, people who might have a concern for the poor, might be considered liberal and compassionate, who are saying, well, even though I'm concerned about the poor, I've got to be more concerned about the environment, so they can't have our standard of living because it would harm the environment. So you can see that there are some massive trade-offs when we begin to talk about this issue of global warming. You know, Kirby, I spent a lot of time on the West Coast and in Asia and in Japan, and there is a resentment against the United States, well, mainly against George Bush for not signing on to the Kyoto Protocol. You know, there's a, a resentment out there towards him. You know, why is that resentment towards the United States and not towards these other countries, China and India. Well, and that's part of it is that, first of all, I think you've got to understand that there is sort of a blame America first philosophy, not only in this country, but certainly overseas. And a lot of people like to do things uh, which I call feel-good public policy. For example, I've uh, begun to uh, collect data on many of these European countries and Canada, which have actually signed the Kyoto Treaty. And I cannot find one that's even close to meeting the targets that they actually have ratified. So on the one hand, they sign the Kyoto Treaty and say, oh, yeah, we're concerned about global warming. But when it comes time, when 
push comes to shove, turns out they're not meeting their quotas either. And that has to do with the fact that if you live in a dynamic and growing economy, that's going to take place. Also, I think something that really caught a number of people off guard was the Internet. The amount of electrical usage today is very significant because it used to be that some people just turned off their TV sets, uh, did turn off their uh, lights, and, and certainly during the daytime there weren't lights on, but no one anticipated that the Internet would be going all the time. So there's a lot more electrical usage just as we begin to wire the world. So on the one hand, uh, it is easy to uh, poke your finger in the eye of the United States of America because look at all these other European countries that have signed on to the Kyoto Treaty and you haven't. Now, on the other hand, you may ask the other part of that question, why is it they don't point to India and China? The only way the Kyoto Treaty could be passed is if India and China were left off. But you can recognize that as soon as you try to bring them online, two billion plus people are actually affected. And uh, if you don't bring them online, then you aren't going to be really solving any of the problems. Because after all, most of the growth in the uh, usage of various fossil fuels is taking place in those countries. Ask yourself this very important question. Why are my gas prices going up so much? Well, there are lots of reasons, but one of those has to do with the fact that more and more people in China are using petroleum than people actually expected. There are many other explanations as well. That's just one of about a dozen, but it, I think, just illustrates the point I'm making. And that is right now, there is a real desire for those people to have a standard of living that is least comparable to ours. And we have to ask ourselves the question, if indeed we really believe that this is a major problem, global warming, what are we going to do about it? And I think we come back to the harsh realization that if you look at the cost and look at the benefit, it's an enormous cost and the benefit is very, very slight. Well, you know, this topic has divided many people. You know, has there been any attempt to bring various factions together? I think the best way to illustrate that is to go back to a name I mentioned before, Bjorn Lomborg. And as I pointed out before, here's a guy that used to be with Greenpeace, and um, he began to investigate the facts. He, he kind of reminds us of some of the people we've talked about on this program before that went out to disprove the resurrection and then ended up being some of the great apologists. He kind of went out to disprove some of the people that were critiquing some of the environmental policies, and he began to realize, you know, I, I'm I, he's still an environmentalist, but he really began to reject some of the rhetoric that was taking place at Greenpeace and wrote the book, The skeptical environmentalist and if you've been in my office you see it's a pretty thick book in which he really takes on some of the kind of the cherished myths that are held by environmentalists but because of his unique position a man who has testified with al gore a man who used to be a leader in the environmental movement a man who still is concerned about the environment he's been able to bring together a group of individuals who have actually i think helped us to find a way and that is he put together a panel of economists it came to be known as the copenhagen consensus and i might encourage any of our listeners that would like to know more about that you can just type in copenhagen consensus and you can find it uh, very easily and uh, this included a number of individuals including a very significant panel of economists three of whom were nobel prize winners and so he said okay let's look at all the problems in the world and they looked at all the various problems and then he came back and said okay let's look at those problems let's now evaluate 
how much it would cost to deal with those problems. And so you do a cost-benefit analysis. And at the end, they rank them in, tor- in terms of their, basically, attractiveness. And he found, interestingly enough, that things like clean water, communicable disease, hunger at the top of the list, and at the very bottom of the list was climate change and dealing with global warming. In other words, if you really want to improve the standard of living of people in this country, the standard of living of people, especially in the third world, the best way to take the scarce resources we have would be to spend them on treating things like hunger and disease and clean water. And the most ineffective way of spending those scarce resources would be to deal with global climate change. And so this has caused a lot of people to, again, come back to a scenario that we've talked about. Even if you assume that global warming is taking place, even if you assume that it is due primarily to human activity, the third point is is that it would be very, very expensive to treat even the symptoms And the harsh reality is, in some respects, you would be better trying to mitigate rather than to alleviate the changes. And that might mean over time that if indeed the Earth is getting warmer because of sunspot activity, because of solar cycles or whatever, we begin to just reevaluate whether that takes place. Even if you say that the uh, uh, level of the oceans is going to rise, and I I think I pointed out in the last time we were together that Al Gore says they're going to rise 20 feet. Now some people are saying maybe a foot over the next century, it would be easier to put up dikes and walls and levees than it would be to try to come up with all the various kinds of treaties, political changes, economic changes necessary to uh, alleviate all of that. The bottom line is there may be even some other things that we can do to alleviate the kind of stress that we see in the environment. But right now, the evidence is very, very clear that it would be very, very expensive and it would have very little effect. And so that's caused a number of people that used to really be believing that global warming needed a Kyoto Treaty to sort of back off a little bit and begin to think of other alternatives. Well, Kirby, in a final few minutes that we have here together, how do we cool the hype? I mean, from elementary school, we're hearing we've got a disaster on our hands in global warming. How do we get this kind of balanced information into the hands of people? Well, I think that's why uh, you might want to go to some of the articles that I mentioned before. I've mentioned uh, Ian Murray's book, you know, The Idea of 25 Inconvenient Truths for Al Gore. I've mentioned Beyond Lomberg, L-O-M-B-O-R-G. There are quite a number of books that are out there as well. Jonah Gomberg wrote a book, uh, an article on a global cooling cost too much. Those are the kinds of pieces of information that need to get out there. And my co-host on a radio show I did uh, told a great story the other day. She was talking about how her her husband was driving with their granddaughter, and she looked over and saw these men working on a building. And she, the little girl, said, "Well, these men are bad men." And she said, "Well, why? Because she's he's building a building, and because of that, they tore down trees. And these are bad men." And it just helped us understand that even at the grade schools, young children are learning that if you cut down a tree, you're a bad man. If you build a building, you're a bad man. And so I think it's important for us to come back and bring a little more perspective, as we're doing today, to this discussion and recognize as well the need for us to be informed about this issue, because this isn't just one of those sort of academic, esoteric discussions 
there are going to be votes in the United States Senate on whether or not to ratify a Kyoto Treaty. There are going to be votes in the future about whether or not we should do things to deal with global warming. So you need to educate yourself about these facts and pass this information on to others so that they get a more reasoned understanding of this issue of global warming. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. In fact, there's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just $2.50. They're 30-minute shows on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want. And we've got some of the top scholars on there. Dr. Norman Geisler, Dr. Craig Evans, Hugh Ross, and others are on there. And also you can read our articles. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. God bless and thanks so much for listening evidenceandanswers.org